A phrase that has become really commonplace in our life today is the idea of uncertainty. Uh, Wherever you turn, whatever news station or social media outlet you go to, we hear many things about the uncertain times or the uncertain days that we find ourselves in. Uncertain days, therefore, are the new normal. And, And while I would argue that uncertainty has been the reality of human existence for centuries, maybe we feel the gravity of it more now than we did back in January. And I just want to remind us this morning as we contemplate life and as we consider the days that we live in, that as followers of Christ, we are called to cling to our certain hope, the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't know where you live, but two days ago on Friday, we woke up and there was fog. It was a very foggy morning and it felt like a picture of some of the life that we're in right now. That we can't see everything that's out in front of us. We're not certain of what the days or weeks or months ahead might entail. But it's one faithful step. One obedient step after another as we follow Jesus Christ. I'll say it this way. In Christ, you can confidently know that you have eternal life. We can know this with confidence, with assurance. And if you've been with us over the course of this summer, we have been walking through the letter of 1 John, where we see over and over and over again that we can have certain knowledge, we can have confident hope, we can have faith in the Son of God, and that saves us for all of eternity. We see a theme that's being repeated over the course of this book and specifically over the course of this particular text, this idea of knowledge. We see the word know repeated here seven times in 1 John 5, 13 through 21. John is seeking to communicate with us the importance of knowing that we have eternal life. It says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John here is writing to followers of Jesus. He says, I write these things to you who believe, to you who have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, to those of us who know him as our personal Lord and Savior I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And then John goes on to state his purpose. Why he's writing this letter. He brings it all to a right conclusion here in verse 13 and says, That you may know that you have eternal life. That with confident knowledge, with certainty, you can know where you will spend your eternity. It reminds me of John's gospel. We spent uh, two years walking through verse by verse the gospel of John. And in John chapter 20, verse 31, the same writer, the same author, John, says these words, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. Followers of Jesus can have assurance of their salvation. Our main point this morning, in Christ, you can confidently know you have eternal life. I want you to remember that. I want you to take that truth with you as you go from here today. But let's continue to unpack this scripture. Because I think as we look at this text, it causes us to ask a question. And it goes something like this. Why should you and I have confidence in Christ? What's the reasoning? Why can we have confident hope in Christ? We see three ways here in the text. Number one, followers of Jesus know God hears their prayers. Followers of Jesus, true believers, can know with certainty that when they pray and they ask things of God, when they speak and communicate with the creator of the universe, God hears their prayers. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. Why can we be confident in Christ? This is it. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. When there is assurance, when we have that confident knowledge that we are in Christ, that we have an eternal hope, that assurance, it brings Christ-like confidence in our lives. You think of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, where the writer says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Right? There is a confidence, there is a hope that fills the heart of the believer when we place our faith and trust in him. It says this is the confidence that we have toward Christ. And what is that confidence? It says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Anything according to his will, he hears us. Let's talk about this phrase, according to his will. How can we pray according to the Father's will? What does that sound like? What does that look like? Well, there's a couple things that I would want to highlight. There's a lot of ways that we could go about this. But there's really two categories as we understand the Lord's will when we're praying that's important for us today. We know that there is God's hidden will. These are the realities of God's specific plans for both our present and our future. And let's be honest, we don't always know those things. We're not privy to all of the specific plans, the detailed will of God for our lives. We're called to live by faith and not by sight. So there's the hidden will of God that he reveals to us many times over time or sometimes in retrospect as we look back over the course of our lives and the faithfulness of God. But then there's the revealed will of God, which would be God's word. The truth, the inspired word of God that we can know 
We can understand by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can know the revealed word of God by going to Scripture and making it the foundation, the standard of our lives. One commentary said this, if Christians are praying in accordance with what pleases God, as found in the teaching of Scripture, then they are praying according to his will. And so our prayers are not meant to be just a laundry list of requests and things that we sinfully or selfishly want or desire. No, we're called to petition the Lord and to pray to the Lord, but we do so in direct accordance with his word as the foundation of our lives. John goes on to say in verse 15, he says, if we know, there's again our repeated word, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, then we know we have the requests that we have asked of him. And just for a moment, I want to focus in on this phrase. We've heard it now two times that God hears us. Because I think for Christians, people who have grown up in the church around the things of God, the idea that the creator of the universe hears us can become old news. But think about that reality for a moment. That because of the power of the cross and what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we can talk to God. We can have conversation with God. And he hears us. And he responds to our prayers. He has our best interest in mind. He works all things together for good. He is working on our behalf. God hears us. Church, that should be enough. The fact that the creator of the universe hears our humble, broken prayers should be enough because if we're honest that should be the goal of our prayer that we would have a genuine relationship with God God is not a means to some other end he's not just a a genie in a bottle to give us what we want it is about the relationship with God and we receive that through prayer says we have the requests. Again, does this mean that we get whatever we ask of God? No. Human experience tells us over and over again, it testifies that Christians don't always receive the things they ask from God. Prayer is not a tool that we use to get things from God. It's about relationship. And God knows best. Um, this past week on July 17th, 2020, J.I. Packer, um, theologian, pastor, shepherd of the body of Christ for many, many years and decades, died at the age of 93. And, and I've listened to a number of podcasts and interviews over this past week about his life and his ministry. And one story really sticks out, and maybe you've heard this before, but I think it's worth repeating the story goes that as a young boy, J.I. Packer desperately wanted a bicycle for his birthday. And so he asked his parents, Mom and Dad, I'd like a bicycle for my birthday. And his birthday came, and 
He was all excited about the bike, thinking that's what he was going to get. And what he found was not a bicycle, but a typewriter. His parents had given him a typewriter. And if you know the life and ministry of J.I. Packer, he was a guy who over the course of decades and decades of ministry, he wrote and he wrote and he wrote. And just this morning I was listening to a podcast on his life and the guy who was being interviewed who had written a book about J.I. Packer said, to the day he died, he did not own a computer. All of his writing was done by that typewriter. And as I share this story because as we think about the sovereignty of God and how our God is a good father, there are a lot of things that we will ask for in life. Things that we think or we feel would be best for us. But like good earthly parents give children what they need, not always what they want. Our perfect heavenly father always gives us what we need. Our God hears us. Well then in verses 16 and 17, kind of continuing on this theme of prayer, I believe John gives us an example of prayer. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. It says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, or in other words, he shall pray. And God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. And he says, I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. Here John begins by saying, if anyone sees his brother or another Christian, a brother or sister in Christ, committing sin, not leading to death, he should pray. He should come before God. He should petition on behalf of this brother or sister in Christ and ask God to draw him near. But the question, as we look at this text, and this is one of those passages, many of these in the book of First John, John, that are rather difficult to interpret and difficult to understand. And so the question is, what is this sin not leading to death that John refers to? What is John getting at when he says there is a sin not leading to death? To answer it simply, as we look at this idea of sin not leading to death, it's a sin that can be forgiven. And so we know as we look at the New Testament, as we look at God's word, where there is genuine confession of sin, when we admit that we are broken sinners in need of a savior, when there is true repentance where we turn from our sin and we run to Christ, God promises forgiveness, that our sins can be washed clean, that we can be made as white as snow. And so as we look at this text, this sin not leading to death, I believe, is a sin that can be forgiven. It's not by our works. It's not by some magical prayer that we pray. It's by the grace of God. It's by the mercy of God. 
It's through the power of the cross and Christ's accomplished work that we can be forgiven of our sins. So the next question is, well, what is the sin that leads to death that he talks about here as well? Well, The first word I want to focus in on is this word death. Is he referring to physical death or is he referring to spiritual death? Now, I think there's good arguments on both sides of the question, but I believe that he is referring to spiritual death because, again, in verse 13, it sets the context that he's talking about eternal life that comes to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So when we talk about spiritual death, what we mean by that is that when we fail to believe in the Son of God as the Savior of the world, we also then fail to experience eternal life, which is the privilege that comes to those who truly know Jesus. To know Christ is to spend eternity with him in his presence. To not know Christ is to spend eternity separated from him in a place called hell. And so when John writes here, he is speaking to spiritual death in our eternal life. But what is this sin then that leads to death? What is John referring to here? Well, there's a number of arguments and there's some good ones out there. But there's a couple that I would want to mention that are simply not the truth. Some people believe that certain sins that people commit, that there's no forgiveness for it. Or maybe you would, you've heard people talk about murder or adultery or idol worship or other like high pedestal, quote unquote, sins that people commit that are viewed as unforgivable in the eyes of God. And that could not be further from the truth. Because we know that Jesus died once and for all for all sin so that we could be redeemed and set free from the bondage of slavery to sin. Other people have argued that this passage says that certain sins then cause people who were one time saved to lose their salvation. It's not true. We were saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ. It's Jesus' work on the cross that secured our salvation in the first place. So what is he talking about? I want to read for you just a portion of one commentary that I thought just really summarized a good answer to this question. What is this sin that leads to death? It says, sin that leads to death is probably sin that is, one, unrepented of, and two, the kind or nature that John has warned about throughout his letter. And what sins might that be? Or what kind of life might that look like? He says, resolute rejection of the true doctrine of Christ, chronic disobedience to the commands of God, persistent lack of love for fellow believers, all indications of a lack of saving faith which will not be forgiven. So what is John talking about here? It's not specific sins that a believer might commit that will disqualify him from heaven. What John has in view here is the person who has never experienced salvation. Who doesn't have that personal relationship with God. 
The person who, because of their lack of saving faith, because of their lack of genuine belief in Jesus Christ, will not be forgiven. It's a sobering reality for us who are followers of Jesus. That our friends and family, our coworkers and neighbors, the people that we rub shoulders with every day, that if they do not know Christ as their savior, they will spend eternity separate from him. John goes on to say here in verse 17, he says, I do not say that one should pray for that. In other words, John is not suggesting that we should pray that the world, the evil people, the wicked would perish apart from Christ. It should be quite the opposite. As true believers, our hearts should break for the things that break God's heart. We should pray with fervency for those who don't know Christ that they would repent of their sins and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That our prayers and our heart would be full of compassion for those who don't know him. He concludes in verse 17 by saying, All wrongdoing is sin. Let's not forget, we're all broken. We all fall short of the glory of God. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. And that is made possible through confession and receiving forgiveness through Christ. So why should we have confidence in Jesus? Our eternal hope, our eternal life, By the grace of God, we have eternity in him. Why should we have confidence in Christ? First reason, followers of Jesus know God hears their prayers. So what does that mean for our lives? I believe when we come to God's word, we should always desire to look more like Christ as a result of studying his word that our lives would look different and transformed because of the truth of God's word. So how does this change us? Here's my challenge for us today. As you go into a new week, a new schedule, here's the challenge. I challenge you to plan your prey. Not your day, all right? We naturally do that. If you've ever sat through any time management kind of seminar or listened to something or watched something about using your time wisely, we know that we ought to plan our days and use our time wisely. But are we planning? Are we setting aside time? Are we devoting time in our busy schedules to pray to our Father in heaven? This week, plan your pray. So we look at God's word. Prayer is central to a healthy, growing relationship with God. It is central to a growing faith. If you want to read more on prayer, go to James chapter 5. The entire ending section of James chapter 5 deals with the power, the effectiveness, the importance of our prayers. To make it practical, you might have heard this. When you plan your day, you should plan what's most important first. As believers, what's most important to us? What is the most important thing for us as followers of Christ? That we 
have a relationship with God. And the way we communicate, the way we have a relationship with him is through prayer. Why should we have confidence in Christ? Followers of Jesus know God hears their prayers. And secondly, followers of Jesus know he protects them from the evil one. He protects us from Satan. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. It says this, And we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. I love that. The evil one does not touch him. Followers of Jesus know that Jesus himself protects them from the evil one. As we look at this text, when it talks about someone who has been born of God, we've seen this phrase throughout John's letter. It means it's someone who is genuinely saved, that you have been reborn spiritually into a relationship with God through Christ. And when that is the reality of your life, it says that he or she does not continue or keep on sinning. Now, does this mean that believers won't sin? No. But we're called to pursue Christ. That our lives, from the moment of our new life in Christ, our salvation, that as we walk through the journey of life, we should look more like him. We should pursue him and desire to be like him more and more every day. And John ushers us a promise I love this promise because it's rooted in our belief that Jesus is Lord. What does it mean that he who was born of God protects us? Jesus Christ, who is sent from heaven, conceived by the Spirit, raised from the dead. Jesus himself protects his followers from the relentless attacks of the evil one. It says the evil one does not touch him. Yes, temptations will come. Trials will come. But for those who are in Christ, Satan can never rob the eternal hope and the eternal glory that you have from Christ. That's why it says in James chapter 4, verse 7, we're called to resist the devil. And it says he will flee from you. I love verse 19. It says we know that we are from God. We know this. We have confidence we know that we have a relationship with God. We know that our eternity is secure in our relationship with Jesus. But it goes on to say that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So on one hand, Christians are those who have been spiritually reborn. We are God's kids. We have been adopted into God's family. But those who are outside of Christ, the whole world says it is under the power of the authority of the evil one. Jesus protects us from the attacks of the evil one. But what are we called to do? How are we called to live amidst trials and temptations and hardships in life? Well, again, I would want to challenge us with one thought, and that is this. Confess your sin. Because when we confess our sin, what we're doing is we are, we are claiming and proclaiming the victory that Christ has accomplished for us. 
That when he died on the cross, he once and for all paid the penalty. He paid the debt for humanity's sin. And by believing in that message and confessing our sin, we receive the forgiveness of God. But Satan, that's not his desire for our lives. It says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And so when Satan talks to us, he always accuses us. You don't really love God. Oh, you, you fell into sin again? Way to go. When Satan talks to us, it's always with accusation. But may we, as the body of Christ today, be reminded that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross will forever be greater than our sin. Jesus' sacrifice is greater. And so again, James chapter 5 calls us then to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That we would confess our sin first to the Lord because that is ultimately the, the one that we have sinned against. And that we would confess our sin to those around us. In 1 John 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friend, you will never wear that verse out. There is no sin so great that it will separate you from the love of God. If you are in Christ, if you have a relationship with him, when we confess, God's forgiveness cleanses us. So here's a challenge, just a, a practical challenge. I would challenge you if you don't already have this spiritual discipline, this practice in your life, that you would begin confessing your sins daily. That you would recognize your brokenness because when we confess our sins, guess what happens? It makes us grateful for what Christ has done for us. And if you're like me, it's helpful to write those things down in a prayer journal. And so I could show you over the past six months in my journal all of the sins and the ways that I've fallen short. And, and there are times that I'll go back and I'll read those things. And that's you very, very humbling, right? I still need the forgiveness of God. I am in desperate need of my Savior to live the life that God has called me to. Why should we have confidence in Christ? Followers of Jesus know he protects them from the evil one. And lastly, followers of Jesus know that he came to restore them to God. Followers of Jesus know with certainty that he came to restore them to a right relationship with God. Look at verses 20 and 21. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the one true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols.
Here John wraps up his letter with some very profound truth. He begins by saying, we know that the Son of God has come. The reference to Jesus' incarnation, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came. And it says in verse 20 that he has given us understanding. And as followers of Christ, we know that our understanding of God's word and our understanding of God's will is something that we can never accomplish on our own power or our own insight. The only way that we can understand God's word and understand how we apply it to our lives is through the work of the Holy Spirit, our helper, our guide, the one who leads us and guides us into all truth. We have been given understanding in the work of the Spirit of God. Are we living under that reality? Are we tapping into that resource? The Spirit of God dwells inside of us. Why? It says, so that we may know him who is true. I believe this is a reference to the Father, the one true God, that all the way back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, the relationship with God was made distant. There was separation between God and man because of sin. But Jesus Christ came so that we may know him who is true. So that we might have a relationship with God, that our relationship with him would be restored. And then he finishes by saying this, we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. We have a new identity. We are a new creation in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. And I love the way that John ends this chapter and this book. It says, keep yourselves from idols. In other words, stop trusting, stop obeying, stop revering, stop following. In other words, stop worshiping anyone or anything other than God himself and his son, Jesus Christ. Because when we do so, we are guilty of idolatry. We are putting someone or something before God. So what's keeping you from experiencing a flourishing relationship with God? Because Jesus came to restore us to God himself. Here's my final challenge as we look at this text. Worship the Savior. In every area of your life, wherever you go this week, whatever you're called to this week, worship your Savior. Honor him, bless him, bring glory to his name. And I promise you that your life will be pleasing to God. In Christ, you can know that you have eternal life. Do you know that? As you sit here today, do you know eternal life? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for this morning. We thank you for an opportunity to gather and to worship you. God, I pray that every person in this room would know that they have a relationship with God.
that their eternity is with you in heaven. And so God, if there's anyone here today who doesn't have that assurance, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in their heart, that you would save them, that God, you would sanctify them, that God, you would grow their faith during this season of life. Father, we love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.